Part two of Introduction of a Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This consequence of poaching is, I confess, but a mere possibility at present, and am willing enough to join with everybody in regarding it as a very chimerical one too. But still I cannot get it out of my head that the causes which at last brought to the ruin of many empires and kingdoms, now to be found only in history, were at first no more than possibilities, as little dreaded as the one under consideration. Such, therefore, as are big with horrible calamities, cannot be too warily guarded against, nor will the wise nations, who have at heart the felicity of distant generations, look on them with indifference. People are too apt to read ancient history without learning that small causes often give origin to the most terrible revolutions in human affairs. Shooting on wing is in the opinion of people of superficious reflection, productive of no other effect whatever than the death of a hare or a bird, without ever extending their views to the awful consequences mentioned above. Thus, the man who plants trees little imagines that some of the seedlings which he carries in his hand may be destined to furnish the pillory or gibbet on which his great-grandson is to suffer pigmy or death. In the same manner, the man who gives his infant son a dice-box to rattle for his amusement is not aware that he may thereby infuse into his young heart a passion for gaming which shall one day reduce him to beggary, to the highway, and to the devil. Since then, poaching is ruinous to gentility and to the game. It may be so to the nation, also the interests of falconry and of posterity. Call loudly for every man of weight and authority to suppress that enormity. Noblemen and gentlemen ought to encourage informations against poachers of all kinds, to bring them to immediate conviction and make them feel the salutary rigor of the laws. This procedure, and I observe with pleasure, the spirit within it is attended to in this country, will at once save the game from extermination and posterity from the perdition which may be caused by any army of marksmen always ready to start forth as soon as rebellion shall sound her trumpet. Further, by wrenching the gun out of the plebeian hands and putting it into those gentlemen alone, this engine will be divested of its present dishonor and acquire an air of dignity. Then it may be used by those who either have no taste for falconry or are unequal to the expense of that glorious diversion or would throw the pleasure of variety into their sports. I proceed now to lay before my kind and indulgent readers some particulars relative to falconry which have long been hid from our sportsmen either in their libraries, of their curious, or in remote countries. I hope that, while he peruses the following stories, he will constantly reflect they bring to his knowledge matters which happened in times and places very different from his own. There is a versatility in the human imagination which always hurries on to change the situation of things and to bestow on them new arrangements, which, however, it is restless till it have altered to others, that in their turn must yield to new successors. Hence it is, 
that the politics, manners, languages, learning, dress, cookery, building, sports, and the opinions of our times are so different from those which obtained among the ancients. There were many things common among men, which now seem so entirely opposite to our taste and practice that we can hardly give credit to them. And were it not for the authority of the writers who record them, should be put all the long list of fables and romances. What I have remarked with regard to antiquity is to be applied to the present state of remote nations, which are, in numberless customs, as contrary to us as if they had existed fifty thousand years ago. The candid and intelligent reader will therefore grant it to be exceedingly unfair to argue the absurdity or impossibility of ancient or foreign fashions and events from their opposition to what he sees in vogue among his own neighbors. Would it not be too rash a conclusion that, because the ancients had no smoke-jacks, they were unacquainted with roast beef, or because the Turks wear no hats, they go all bareheaded? While my reader avoids this sort of false criticism, he will not hesitate to give his hearty assent to the following narration. But if anything appear too powerful for his belief, I encourage him to consult the authors whence it is extracted. I am not of the mind of your slanderous and tattling gossips, who always pretend bound to conceal the names of the very good authorities on which they tell their venomous tales, when in fact they have not any better authority than their own diabolical imaginations to produce. No, no, where I dare not, or am ashamed to produce my authority, I shall evermore think it mainly to suppress the darling story, which even those who gave it do not choose to acknowledge. Here I might mention, to very good purpose, Nimrod and Esau, as the earliest sportsmen of whom we have any knowledge, in proof of the antiquity of sporting, and in order to confer in that important value which the flux of time, even independent of every other consideration, is well known to bestow on families, as well as on books, medals, and statues. When these gentlemen lived, the world was a good deal more than two thousand years old, a tract of time in which the industrious could hardly fail to light on all the different sports of the field, which were their own serious business. It is true, a mighty deluge swept away out of the world all the human race, whose depravity rendered them unworthy of existing any longer on the face of the earth. None were saved except Noah and his family, whose virtues preserved them from the general devastation to repeople the defoliate globe. They could not but have seen and understood the antediluvian diversions, and these would sometimes enter into their conversations and be learned thence by their children. If we may suppose they were acquainted with hound hunting or killing fowls with bow and arrow. There is no reason for denying them the knowledge of hawking. As animals of almost all kinds increase faster than men, these last, yet few in number, would be obliged to take every method to hinder the too quick multiplication of the former. One of these methods very probably was hawking, an amusement which, once invented, is so sublime and noble that it would never fall into the entire destitute, and must therefore have descended among the other sports of the field, 
to Nimrod and Esau, in whofe hands it would lofe none of its dignity, we cannot eafily, at this diftance of time, tell exactly at what period of the antidiluvian world children gave the original hint of falconry, nor lay down the rules according to which the patriarchs trained their hawks. If the two pillars were extant, the one of brick and the other of stone, on which Seth inscribed the prophecies of Adam, and the knowledge of his own days, for the edification of posterity, perhaps I should be able to throw some light on these curious and abstruse points. It cannot be imagined without derogating from the character of that excellent and primeval gentleman that he omitted falconry among the many sciences which found a place in his pillars, and it will ever be deplored by all genuine sportsmen as an irreparable misfortune that they were not able to withstand the corroding power of years. This loss would have been less severely felt had Nimrod or Esau put pen to paper and written in their leisure hours treaties of falconry containing on their own practice and that of their ancestors for the instruction of future sportsmen. Since, however, the pillars of Seth are now perished, and we know of no books written by Nimrod or Esau, the reader will permit me to say that the patriarchs, if they followed nature in their practice, must have trained their hawks nearly on the principles which are delivered in the ensuing treaty. And if they did not follow nature, time has done little harm in depriving us of their blunder. Hawking is not spoken of by any author with precision till the beginning of the ninth century, when, when Aaron Bombam Boberus reigned over the vast empire Trebizond, and Nestorius flourished in poetry. Those who want to know more of this extraordinary prince may gratify their curiosity by consulting the authors who have written his history, when they have time to rummage any great library where they are preserved. It is well known that the finest collection of these authors on earth in the Grand Sultan's library, and may be readily found as they are on the same shelf with a complete copy of Livy, for a transcript of which Louis the Fourteenth offered a hundred thousand ducats. It is not as a sovereign, but as a sportsman, that I am to consider the emperor of Arambomber Bobers, the character wherein he is also considered by the poet Nestorius, from whom footnote the pronoun I in this place is to be understood of the translator of the following poem, not of the author. I shall transcribe his method of sporting. It is of no consequence to the unlearned to know the life of this poet, and it would be a front if to the learned to suppose they are ignorant of it. However, if anybody is very curious to peruse it, they will obtain ample satisfaction from the famous Frederick Van Bose, to whom the world is indebted for an accurate and splendid edition of the works of this sublime poet. He wrote on hunting, hawking, and fishing in three several poems, and it is from the beginning of the second that the following translation is made, which I lay before the public, not as a critic, but as a falconer. I well know that a poet cannot be properly rendered into another language, but by another poet of a temper and genius similar to his own. But I hope the learned reader will pass an indulgent eye over my mistakes on account of my zeal to entertain him.
and forbear to censure too severely a man who has spent most of his time in the field for inelegancies of style. There are some Greek expressions in this poet about the sense of which I am in some doubt, and I should consider it as a great favor if the learned in that language would clear them up to me in private letters with their usual tenderness and humanity. My errors, alas, flow not from obstinacy, but from weakness. And if he is my friend who helps me to correct them, let us now attend to the poet. The fields coursed o'er with horse and hound and horn, and the surrounding hills shaken from their deepest roots by thundering voices of the hunter train, spurning the earth and to the sky ascending their aerial sports. I now prepare to sing propitious smile on my sublime attempt and spreading out thy wings o soaring goddess from where apollo pours the cheerful day to where he plunges in the briny wave spring with me into imperial regions and support my too adventurous flight to my poetic eyes o towering goddess thy beauteous form present arrayed as when thou issuest forth from assembled deities who all in jovial mood neglect the care of universal nature and seek to solace themselves with the delights of falconry or on the lofty summit of olympus or on the frozen sides of caucus or along tempe's flowery plains yes yes i now behold three majestic thy head adorned with bonnet of azure dye to which the ostrich has added his waving plumage gorgeous thy body apparelled in vast and mantle short of liveliest green at once displaying female elegance and manly vigour and sweet proportion blended thy limbs encircled from the skirts of thy garments down to thy knees in the colours of heaven's arch duly mingled are free to climb the mountain's brow or fly through the windings of the vale and on thy left hand fits erect the bird of mighty jove in conscious dignity as sovereign of the feathered race reigning wide from the abodes of men up the thrones of the immortal gods the fun had just from the eastern gates of light burst forth and his diverging beams streaked the scattered clouds with dazzling gold and tingled the limpid dew on the mountains with the various lustre of all the gems which sparkle on the taper fingers of wealthy maidens Arambombam Boberus, Trebizond's dread and unconquerable monarch issued from the lofty portal of this stately palace to seek the pleasures of the princely sport by flying at the bounding deer the impetuous king of birds Arambombobobarus whose bulk and strength would more than match the bulk and strength of ten heroes bore in his hand an eagle hatched in the frightful cliffs of the monotapian mountains and in size proportional to his imperial lord bold defiance flashed from his piercing eye and death in all its horrors seemed prepared to spring from his massy beak and grasping talons filling the various tribes that cut the yielding air with towering dread tremendous even to the human sight and power his hood lined with the softest velvet was adorned with burnished gold 
From the top arose a tuft of seed pearls, pure as the dew on the bending grass, strung on silver threads, and from the gold below shone a blaze of rubies, topazes, and diamonds, that Phoebus, in his meridian glory, might contemplate with envy and admiration. On his legs tinkled twenty silver bells, whose sounds, clear, loud, and melodious, emulated the music of the celestial fears, and poured harmony over the listening country to a compass of five miles around his flight, filling every mortal with ecstatic wonder and transport. With a collar of gold stuck at equal distance from the sharpest spikes of steel, his neck was armed, and on his breast was fixed a plate of the same precious metal, where, amidst festoons of flowers admirably embossed, was seen Aram Bombam Boberus's awful name. Thus fortified, he regarded the disdain of the haggard eagles and Monomotapa that dared to encounter him in the ethereal spaces, and made them, after the first onset, fly from his fierce impetuosity with rapid speed, astonishing the deafened world with their horrible shrieks. Such was the costly furniture of the imperial eagle, which, as he perched on his master's fist, reared his lofty head seven yards in height from his pounces, and, by his hearkening attitude, seemed impatient for his prey. The Trebizonian monarch, attended by a hundred and twenty falconers, swift of foot and of lungs indefatigable, and also by three hundred and sixty youths to beat the cover, appeared among his joyous train in towering majesty, as a sturdy oak that braved the rage of a hundred winters rears its spreading top above a plantation of young trees, the tender the tender nurslings of a few summers, away the hide to the field, two hundred sure-footed spaniels traversing the grounds, and soon arrive at the destined scene of the sport, for which their eager hearts panted impatient. That day the winter confined themselves to their caverns, all except soft-breathing Zephyr, who gently shook the leaves of the trees and curled the glassy surface of the pool with his tempid breezes. But too weak was Zephyr to lift into the air the vast weight of the imperial eagle and give his far-extending pinions room to play. Yet this unseasonable calm could not obstruct the emperor's pleasure. For what can resist the will supreme of the great Arambam Boberus? This mighty prince had ordered to be drawn to the field by forty horses, a vast pair of bellows made of the hides of three hundred bullocks, which he had slain in hecatombs of Elos. The blustering tyrant of the tempests, at his accession eighty years before the throne of August, Barca rang glam king pink o de Bodicus, the potent founder of the Trebizonian Empire. These bellows, firm, close, and capacious, could at any time supply the pace of the natural winds and throw the atmosphere into all the confusion of the most outrageous storms. Nor are they wanting who do not hesitate to aver that they even gathered the clouds and drew down overwhelming deluges of rain from the parched firmament. The dogs had now by their call, roused the timid herds of deer from their cover, and made them fly lighter than the breeze up and down the forest, seeking safety from the dangers 
with which they were attacked on every side. The air was at the same time darkened by flocks of birds which were pursued by three hundred hawks of noble iris that have long frequented the ancient pines wherein some venerable castle is embosomed, decrying the aiming archer at a distance, rise up over the hovering wing in a sable cloud over the habitations, and in a twilight dim involve all objects underneath them. The hollowing of such numerous train of falconers, the whooping of the youths who beat the cover, and the ringing of four hundred bells of shrillest sound made the hills, the vales, and the surrounding vault of heaven echo to each other, and animated the air with gleesome noise and uproar. The imperial bellows, bellows that not the mountain-cheeked Boreas might contend against. Without the dread of seeing himself outblasted, he was now set up by a hundred men, and prepared to show Aeolus he was not god of all the winds, but held a jurisdiction over them, shared with the illustrious Arambombam Boberus. This magnanimous potentate placed himself a furlong from the brazen muzzle of, of the prodigious machine, standing a little aside, to receive the full hurricane of the breast of his eagle, on which he was to rise with spread sail to the spacious sky. Thrice proclamation was made by the far-sounding voice of Aaron Bombam Boberus, that all the company should retreat behind the bellows, lest the blast should raise his brave falconers and assistants into the air, and letting them afterwards fall, dash them in pieces against the earth. No sooner did the well-known accents of their lord reach their ear than sensible of the danger of the lingering behind. They all ran with the utmost speed from the woods, and hills and vales, whither their ardor for the sport had carried them, and attended by their faithful dogs, soon arrived breathless, where the vast bulk of the bellows rose conspicuous to direct their steps. Thus, when the north-west wind obscures the meridian, effulgence of the sun with blackening clouds, and moistens the air with chilly dampness, shed from his sable wings, the laborious bees, precious of their gathering storm, forsake the alluring sweetness of every flower, and with hollow murmurs crowd for shelter to their hives from the impending deluge, wisely preferring safety to voluptuousness. Arambombam Boberus, looking round from his gigantic height, and seeing his men and dogs all secure, ordered with a voice that never met with disobedience the most vigorous hundred of his train to work the bellows that his eagle, impatient for blood and sport, might poise himself in air and scatter consternation throughout the hills and forests. Quick as the imperial mandate struck their ear, they seized with sinewy hands the long and massy levers wherewith the engine was wrought, and uniting all their force, unfolded manly circling plies, and the numerous hinges of its frames creaked grating as they turned. Now, with redoubled efforts and swelling muscles, they pull down the mighty levers, and freight a tempest bursts from the blows, with hideous din, and rages with boundless fury over the sea and land. Trees are torn from their roots, the standing corns are dissipated over the face of the earth, and a fleet of smyrene merchantmen 
are dashed against the pitiless rocks. Now the nymphs run up and down the mountains, hollowing for the ruined shades. The husbandmen, with loud lamentations, implore from heaven their vanished hopes, and the sailors, whom the boisterous sea had spared to want and misery, bemoaned their calamities in anguish and despair. This blast, so destructive to everything else with in its violence, no sooner reached the eagle's breast than his lord, with a quick hand, struck his hood and gave him to behold the refulgent beams of Phoebus, which his race alone can eye with steady gaze. This mighty bird, posterity will doubt of the wondrous truth, expanded his long wings full fifteen yards, and mounting on the artificial storm, soon got up to a height from which he commanded a view not of Trebizonian realms only, but also of half the spacious globe. Happy in being restored to liberty, and to the blessed light of day, he expressed the satisfaction of his heart in playful gyrations which encompassed a thousand kingdoms. Now gliding serene on his motionless pinions, and then cutting his lofty way through the air, out thundering the voice of Jove at every stroke of his wings. But bloodless fight cannot long rejoice the high-spirited bird, thirsting for consequence and renown. He darted his far-seeing eyes downwards, and beheld, among the swift inhabitants of the forest, a buck whose sleek coat, swelling haunches, and branching horns tempted his gorge, and provoked his valor to seize him as prey. Meanwhile, the multitude of falconers and assistants, but chiefly the towering Aram Bombam Boberus, whose voice alone he obeyed, gazed on his wheelings, and traversing through the air with high admiration and loud applause, and were racked with impatience to see him exert his vast strength and undaunted courage. Nor did they wait long, for, contracting his wings and clapping them almost close to his sides, he shot obliquely through the air, quick as a meteor darts across the starry heavens, when the moon denies her glare to benighted mortals and in his rapid career seizing the buck that little dreamed his fate was so near he with loud reverberating wing soon regained his former height exulting in his prowess and success the trebizonian eagles of which he had sacrificed many to his wanton cruelty descrying him thus burdened with his prey would take this opportunity of avenging on him the blood of their kindred by assaulting him in a condition which they fondly imagined would make him yield to their combined strength and give up a life which continually threatened their own destruction. Infatuated birds, and doomed to multiply the triumphs of the monomotapian eagle, as whizzes through the gloomy sky the blast which proceeds the rolling thunder and startles the thoughtful traveler, so were heard the founding wings of many a wrathful eagle flying to pour its hottest vengeance on the common tyrant of the air. The battle was maintained on both sides, at first, with almost equal advantage, but the eagles increased so fast in number, and fought with so much impetuosity, that the event became doubtful to mortal eyes. And now the monarch trembled for his bird, lest, overpowered by so great an army of enraged foes, he should receive the stroke of death and fall down at his feet a lifeless carcass. But Jove, the venerable fire of gods, and men, placing the furious combatants in the eternal seals of fate, had adjudged the victory to the mighty bird of Africa, 
which weighed down all his enemies, as a rock outweighs the pebble that is polished by the murmuring brook. The eagle of Aaron Bombambovarus held his prey in one foot, and fought with the other as long as he could. But his adversaries, pressing thicker and bolder on him, he retreated, defending himself till he was over the place where his master was an anxious spectator of the engagement, and then dropped the buck hard by him in token of his love and homage to his protector. They, perceiving him to yield, thought the day their own, and the cowards, which had hovered about the skirts of the combat, now flocked to the pursuit, in order to share in the glory of a victory which they had done nothing to gain. But the imperial bird, now free from every encumbrance, sprang, keen as the gleam of lightning, into the hottest of the battle, fending at every stroke of his talons, one of his foes shrieking to the shades below, to bemoan the folly of waging such unequal war. In vain they tried to tear his neck and gorge, which were defended by his collar and breastplate. By the rash attempt, they only put themselves within his reach, whence no creature worthy of his resentment, or proper to assuage his hunger, ever expected with life. As thick as falls the flakes of snow on the Hyperborean mountains, where reindeer, secure from the monomotapian eagle's ravenous gorge, transport the traveler, sudden as the illusion of a dream over the frozen surface, so thick fell the carcasses of the Trebizonian eagles from the sky, and strewed the fields with ghastly images of death. The remaining flew, struck with a panic by the fate of their unhappy friends, sought safety and speedy flight, and winged their way, full of mingled sorrow and revenge, to hide their heads in their native rocks. The eagle of Arambombamboberus, left master of the sky, wheeled round the plains of war thrice, in token of his victory and then, lured by a buck's head held high up to him by the monarch, he darted immediately down to his hand, and received the recompense and applause he had so nobly won by his spirit and bravery. End part two of Introduction This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.